Chat with Traders is sponsored by Trade the Pool. Are concerns about limited buying power, insufficient capital, or fear of losing your own money preventing you from advancing your trading capabilities? Trade the Pool is an online stock trading prop firm that offers funding for stock traders. Demonstrate your skills, trade their capital, and keep your profits. You can engage in intraday trading and now swing trading on Trade the Pool with any U.S. stock or ETF. The procedure is straightforward. Pay an evaluation fee, successfully complete the evaluation, and get funded. Visit tradethepool.com forward slash chat to learn more. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. The biggest secret of the best traders in the world is that they're just like everyone else. However, they've worked hard to learn the markets and discover what works and what doesn't. But how can you hear about these journeys and get in on the strategies and tactics they use? You can do it by listening to Chat with Traders. Here's your host, Aaron Fifield. Okay, what's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of the Chat with Traders podcast, and I'm thrilled to have you with me. Now, before I even introduce my guest for this week's interview, I just want to say I've been receiving a bunch of great feedback on the show lately, which is really cool. So I'd like to give a big thanks and a shout out to anyone who has either emailed me, commented on the site, hit me up on Twitter, or even left a review on iTunes. I really appreciate it. The support is incredible. So thank you very much. All right, so my guest on the podcast this week is Jack Little of mercenarytrader.com. Jack is a global macro trader who originally started out as an international commodity broker. Today, he now has more than 17 years of skin in the game and is a very competitive trader. He's also a keen poker player and believes there are many crossovers between poker and trading, which of course makes for some interesting conversation during this episode. Also during this episode, we speak about how Jack thinks of trading in terms of probabilistic outcomes instead of attempting to quote-unquote predict the future. We spend quite some time on the subject and I myself found his views on this particularly interesting. Another highlight would be Mastering the Art of the Big Bet, where Jack shares insight to the times when you should press harder on a trade to make profits that have a real impact. Now, guys, just a final reminder for the mentoring giveaway. Entries close this Friday, 6th of November at midnight Eastern Standard Time. So just in case you haven't already heard, this is your chance to win a free 90-minute one-on-one mentoring session with a seasoned pro trader. Who are these traders? Well, they are Chris Sace, Zach Hurwitz, and Brad Jelenic. Each have plenty of real market experience, very genuine and most importantly, active traders who have previously featured on this podcast. Now, seeing as there are three mentors, there will be three winners also. So to enter, just go to chatwithtraders.com forward slash win, that's W-I-N, and enter email address. That's it. It's very simple. And I'd just like to add in here, this level of access is generally very difficult to come by. 
where you have an experienced trader who is willing to block out their time to sit down with you and do what they can to help you see better results. So please make the most of this opportunity and go to chatwithtraders.com forward slash win to enter now. All right, now time for this week's interview. I'm your host, Aaron Fifield. This is the Chat With Traders podcast and please welcome my guest for episode 45, Jack Little of Mercenary Trader. Hey Jack, welcome to the podcast, man. How's it going? Good. Thanks for having me. Going really well. Awesome. Good to hear and no trouble whatsoever. It's, um, it's awesome to be speaking with you and thanks so much for taking the time to do this. I've been keen to speak with you for, for quite a while now and I, I think this will be quite an interesting discussion because you've got some, some strong opinions in a slightly unique way of looking at things, which of course we're going to really dive into. Plus, I'm hoping there will be plenty of uh, poker analogies thrown in the mix too. So I'm looking forward sure. to it. <laughs> I'll work on that. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. So first things first, take us back in time to when you first got involved with trading. How were you introduced to markets and also share with us what were you doing before this time also? Okay. Uh, so I was introduced to markets in college and... Uh, basically, so I majored in English and philosophy. Uh, I was a very much a left-handed, right-brain, creative arts guy. And I originally thought that I was going to wind up as a professor. And I had this vision of being an academic, um, one of those cool professors, kind of like Robin Williams in um, Dead Poets Society, you know, wearing the tweed jacket and writing books in summers and all this. And I just thought I would be this cool English professor who wrote books. And... But then I had my dream completely shattered by one of my philosophy professors who basically said, look, uh, going into academia is terrible. Your life's going to be terrible for like the first five years. It's awful. There's all these petty fights. And, and he just convinced me that academia would be a terrible idea. So I was completely set adrift and I had no idea what I was going to do uh, with my life because my cushy dream of being an English PhD was shattered because uh, I thought it would be awful. Um, and I didn't know what I was going to do. And then I came across this book on the, uh, my buddy's dorm room floor, this guy who lived on my hall. And that book was uh, The Investment Biker by Jim Rogers. And this was around 1995 or 1996. And so I picked up this book, Investment Biker, which was all about uh, this guy, you know, this ex-hedge fund manager who takes a motorcycle trip around the world with his girlfriend and decides whether or not to invest in the countries that he passes through. And I had never really been exposed to markets, but I immediately thought, okay, making money by traveling around and thinking is the coolest job on the planet. So I decided immediately from there, I have to get into markets. And uh, I pretty immediately fell in love with macro because of the whole top-down sweeping perspective of looking at countries and currencies and things like that. And so I stayed an English and philosophy major because I was already, um, you know, halfway through college. But then I just uh, started interning at stock brokerages and read a couple hundred books and just jumped in with, with both feet. And then when I got out of school, I decided that I wanted to go into commodities. I thought that was the best route in. I didn't really want to do stocks. I was already bitten by the macro bug and had read Market Wizards and stuff. Um, and... Everybody was in Chicago for commodities, except there was this one little boutique firm that had uh, clients all over the country and the world that was run out of Lake Tahoe. And the boss had moved it to Lake Tahoe just because he liked to ski. 
So I wound up my first job out of school was becoming an institutional commodity broker. And I had a whole bunch of hedge clients and worked with um, farmers and cattle ranchers and currency hedgers and scrap metal dealers and things like that. And I also worked with a bunch of speculators. And my largest client was a Russian hedge fund. And a bunch of these guys would put in orders over ICQ, this old instant message system. And that's sort of how I got started. Um, this, this Jim Rogers book led me to commodities. And um, I did commodities for a couple of years. And then I switched over to uh, equity trading partnership and uh, just sort of expanded from there. But that was the, uh, that was the beginning. I was an uh, English and philosophy guy and found a book on a dorm room floor and became fascinated by markets and came in through commodities and then got into stocks. And now we pretty much do everything. And here we are now. So yeah, <laughs> what a great story. Um, okay, so let's, let's take it back to the right at the beginning there. You said when you jumped in with both feet, so I take it that you had a little bit of experience trading independently before you went to work with the firm. Is that is that correct? Um, well, a little bit, but not a whole lot. I um, I jumped in just in terms of reading everything I could get my hands on, and then I had this friend of mine who had introduced me to markets, introduced me to his broker, and he got us into some penny stocks that wound up doing terribly. And so I learned pretty early on, don't invest in penny stocks. And... Uh, uh, I, I did some dumb things early on, um, but mainly I had a, a mental education of just reading a whole lot of stuff and then watching a lot of people uh, before I went into the commodity brokerage business. I spent a couple of years, uh, two or three summers as an intern at Raymond James Financial, which was really interesting. Um, I was working for a really successful stockbroker who sold... Um, his big thing was biotech stocks, and he loved these crazy stories about, you know, this drug that's going to do X or this technology that's going to do Y. And uh, I just saw a lot of interesting different sides of the business. Um, traded a little bit, soaked up a lot of information. I really, my, my first couple years as a commodity broker is when I learned, um, you know, learned some good lessons and some hard lessons about trading. Okay, so your role as a commodity broker, what exactly did that involve? Uh, well, we were uh, we were a boutique firm that had both institutional clients and retail clients. So, I worked with I, I played support to my boss who had a bunch of clients and he's been in markets for a couple decades, and so he had a lot of hedging clients. So, for example, farmers would call in and need to hedge their wheat or soybean crop, or scrap metal dealers would want to hedge uh, their copper futures positions, and so. I would get on the phone and take orders from people and give reports to people and things like that. And then um, I started, uh, I'm sorry about that, there's a little construction going on in the building here. Um, and then I started um, helping clients um, construct hedge positions. So I started working with people saying, I need to, I want to hedge this risk. And I said, okay, let's figure out a plan. You can do X and Y and Z. And then we put the positions on. And then we also had a bunch of people who were just straight up speculators and just trading futures, you know, because uh, they wanted to trade aggressively uh, and everything from some really smart traders to just flat out uh, gamblers. So I took a whole bunch of orders back in the days when you still had to write orders on paper tickets and use a timestamp and then call into the trading floor and yell at brokers for bad fills and also uh, constructed uh, hedges for people and um, 
just ran the gamut of, of different types of clients in futures markets. Okay, excellent. So how long were you with this firm before you decided to move on and, and walk us through your next step from there? Sure, I was with the commodity firm for about three years and uh, it was a great education because I started in the fall of 1998 and I proceeded to observe the worst secular commodity bear market in history up to that point. In 1999, commodities were basically going straight down while stocks were going straight up and the dollar was very strong because all this capital was flowing into U.S. markets. And so I, I got to experience this horrifying commodity bear market, which was very interesting. Um, and I was at that, like I say, I was at that firm about three years. Uh, there was this giant clearing firm, Refco, which has since blown up. And they were sort of dominating the commodity business at the time. And commodities were just looking very ugly and bearish. And right about the time of 2001 or 2002, I decided that I had sort of gotten my education in the commodity space and wanted to make a change. So I was there roughly until um, early 2002. And then I decided to pack up and leave. And I did some uh, freelance writing. I had some relationships there where I was writing about trading and writing about markets and actually got involved in making contributions to uh, Michael Covell's book, The Trend Following Guy. I had done a big study on trend following uh, while I was at the brokerage. And from there, I went into an equity trading partnership with a friend who would come into a uh, large amount of um, capital through an, an inheritance. And we set up a partnership where I traded a big chunk of it for him and learned to trade stocks through the market meltdown in 2002 when uh, Enron and WorldCom and all those guys were blowing up. So that was another really interesting experience. Okay, so tell us a little bit about that experience. I mean, were you affected by those, um, those, those names you mentioned blowing up or, or how did you go through that period? Uh, I, we wound up, we wound up uh, making a, a little bit of money but basically breaking even. And I was still, I was still learning a lot of things about trading at that point. We did okay though because I had risk management already tattooed into my brain because now my path is a little bit unique in that I learned to trade basically with futures and then went to stocks second. And so when you learn to trade with futures first, it's like you learn to work with dynamite and then you understand how risk works. Um, and so, and I was naturally you know, had a, had a bearish bent from all these macro guys that I had been absorbing. So being in a crash, it was kind of fun. It was mostly getting used to, though, the, these huge wide swings. And I still had not really figured out my methodology or my market style yet. So we, um, we were probably more active than we should have. I traded in and out too much relative to what I would do now. Um, but we, we did okay basically for the time for how violent and, uh, and crazy it was. Um, so it was, it was a great, great education basically in, uh, you know, living through that kind of market. Sure. Okay. So would you be able to share with us some of the, some of the obstacles you had to overcome, you know, during your early years, kind of up to the point where we're at right now, um, and what areas of trading were particularly difficult for you when starting out? 
Sure. I would say some obstacle, let's see, obstacles and areas of discipline. I think one of the biggest obstacles, one of the biggest things that I had to do was learn to develop a total picture of market awareness. In the beginning, it was funny because I had learned so much about, I had read Market Wizards and read all these books, but I didn't really understand the impact of macro. And the the guy I was working for didn't either. And so a funny story in retrospect was in 99, all these commodities were going straight down and my boss, the boss of the commodity brokerage was a long time bull on commodities and he kept trying to buy things thinking, well, this is the bottom, this is the bottom. And meanwhile, the US dollar was just going straight up. I mean, the US dollar was just being powered by all this capital flowing into US equity markets and it was just going vertical. And now my attitude would have obviously been, duh, of course commodities are going to do terrible because the dollar is so strong. Um, but he wasn't aware of that relationship. He didn't even pay any attention to it. And so I didn't think to pay attention to it because I was looking at so many other things. And so I guess you could say in the beginning, I had so many things I was trying to pay attention to that I missed some really important things just because there's so much stuff. So if somebody says to you, listen, there are 15 things about trading that you really need to understand and you're trying to absorb them all at once, you'll be lucky if you get 10 of them and then you'll forget about five and those five that you forget about will come around and kick your butt. And then you cycle around and you remember those and you forget about some different ones. And there's this gradual iterative process where eventually you absorb everything, but you sort of have to run around and put out fires until you have this total picture of knowledge. And um, I never really had any direct mentors except the guys in the books. Um, I never worked for another trader who was just a great trader. So I had to learn everything through sort of trial and error and uh, reading from afar and things like that. Um, and that was, that was challenging. Um, and then I guess just really, really putting a sort of worldview and style together and figuring out who I was in markets and how I wanted to approach them and, and what the important things were. Yeah, that's great. I really like how you summarized that. So let's, let's change gears now and focus in more on your style of trading that you've adapted and your, your trading, you know, in current times. So, so Jack, speak to us about how you would define your methodology for trading. Okay, uh, how would we define our methodology? Well, let's see. We're top-down, we're global macro in terms of we pay attention to the whole world and capital flows and the big things that are going on, uh, but we're also bottom-up in that we're willing to trade anything. So we will trade commodities and currencies from the top-level view but we will also drill all the way down and invest in individual stocks and hold individual companies for long-term positions if they look good. Um, we have what we call sort of a combination of um, a systematic discretionary hybrid. And by that I mean uh, traditionally when you think of systematic traders versus discretionary on the systematic side, mechanical traders hand all their rules over to a computer whereas discretionary traders make all the decisions themselves. But we are a hybrid in the sense of we have a lot of things that we do systematically 
Uh, like, for example, our position management will follow a lot of systematic rules, but we're discretionary in our decision making. So we're sort of like a cyborg um, in that we're like a human uh, who puts on a mech suit. You know, we're enabled with a, with a computer jetpack where we use computers, but we also use human decisions. And um, as I say, we're able to trade anything, commodities, currencies, stocks, um, anything liquid. And we're typically looking for uh, swing trades or longer term trades where our favorite holding period is, is weeks to months, a really great trade. Uh, we'll hold a really great trade for you know many months, 10 months, a year longer. And we're also looking for very big bets. Uh, we're strong believers in the philosophy that most of the time you trade small. And every once in a while, uh, things really come together and you see an excellent opportunity. And that's when you really scale up. And that's how real uh, profits are made because of the way the market distributes profits in a very fat tail kind of process. Now... I think it was uh, Peter Brandt, who, who just on a side note is a legendary trader and also believe he's a good friend of yours. And uh, he, he was featured on uh, this podcast for episode 36, if anyone wants to check that out. Um, he described you as having an unconventional macroeconomic perspective. And, and you know, you've kind of um, just spoke about it there. But could you speak a little bit more on this subject, especially if someone is maybe completely unfamiliar with the whole idea of macroeconomic perspective. Um, like what are some of the things you take into consideration when analyzing the market from a 10,000 foot view? Sure, so the metaphor I like best, I forget where it came from, but there's a great metaphor, is if you think of the markets like a mountain, like a giant mountain, like Mount Everest or something, and uh, bottom up investors and people who only look at individual companies are sort of like they're walking around at the base of the mountain. And they're not looking up, they're not paying attention to weather, they're just seeing what's happening right there in the valley. And meanwhile, macro is, way, is up higher, the higher elevation levels of, of the mountain where storms can form and, and big weather systems. And so macro comes into play where if you're hanging out around the mountain and you're not paying attention to the weather and it turns really nasty, then you can wind up having thunder and lightning and boulders coming down on your head and so on. And so macro is paying attention to the total picture of the weather system and everything from what's happening down in the valley all the way up to the higher levels, including when there's big storms and uh, thunder and lightning. And because of that, macro traders traditionally do well when there's more volatility. They do well and, and um, make more money when things are, are frightening. Whereas when the skies are blue and the sun is shining, that's when bottom-up investors tend to do better. And, uh, you know, value investors and things like that will make more money. And so to analyze the macro picture, you look at things like um, interest rates and levels of inflation and uh, risk appetite in markets, basic valuation levels, are stocks overvalued or undervalued? Are we in a period of building risk appetite in a boom? Are we in a bust, you know, and, and dealing with the aftermath of the crisis? You're looking at big long-term cycles. You know, there are economic cycles of booms and busts. 
You're looking at capital flows all over the world. Money's like this big wave that's sloshing out of one market and into another market. You're looking at things that governments do. Governments will sometimes take really big drastic measures that have powerful effects on a market. Like for example, China decided to prop up its stock market. And so they created this crazy bull market in Chinese equities. And then it crashed because it was unsustainable. And China created a housing bubble in, in Australia because um, Australia was selling all these base metals to China and that in turn pumped up the Australian housing market with all this profit that was flowing in. So you're looking at these really big relationships and then you're sort of playing a chess game to figure out what's going to happen next. Uh, and then you make bets based on that, which is very different than the traditional investor is only going to look at a single company and figure out what are the fundamentals for this stock. Or a trader might only look at a chart. Whereas a macro trader says, well, we're going to look at everything. Okay. So in that case, could you perhaps give us an example of either a, a recent um, scenario or um, just some of the things you like to see lining up before you actually commit to taking a trade or, or taking a position? Like what gives you final conviction on a trade? Sure. So, uh, so at any given time, we have... We have what we call themes about the market where we're developing ideas and opinions on what's happening and we're developing scenarios sort of like movie plots and we're saying, okay, X could happen or Y could happen based on uh, following what's happening in markets. And then we pay attention to price to get a sense of which of these, what thesis is confirming. So if we're very bearish on crude oil, for example, then we want to see follow through on, uh, on crude oil charts in a bearish direction to confirm that the thesis that we believe is playing out. So for example, one of our large trades in 2014 was um, right around Thanksgiving. Uh, the news came out that Saudi Arabia was not going to cut production and it became clear that they were going to try and punish U.S. shale producers. And so Saudi Arabia basically started an oil war and um, energy stocks had begun to bro break down. And you could see this breakdown on the charts. And we realized, wow, the Saudis are serious. They're going to they're gonna try and drive the price of oil down to put shale producers out of business. This is going to be really bad for energy stocks. And so we shorted energy stocks. And it was a great trade. So you're looking for a theory about what's going to happen relating to supply and demand or um, something strategic. And then you use price to confirm that your idea is correct and to enter the position when price is telling you, uh, yes, it's happening or price is giving you a green light. Are you a developing or seasoned day trader who trades the U.S. markets? Is the only thing stopping you from getting to the next level is having enough capital to trade? Trade the Pool is a unique online stock trading prop firm that funds stock traders worldwide. Not having to risk your own capital can help you focus on other things like making better decisions on your trades. There's no PDT rules to worry about. You got more than 12,000 stocks and ETFs to trade, long or short, and professional tools at your side. How you get funded is you show them your skills through a straightforward evaluation process. Once you pass the evaluation, you get funded and trade with their pool of money and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com slash chat to learn more. 
So I'd like to dig into a topic and spend some time on this. So I'd like to speak about certainty and probability. I know you have plenty to say on this subject. So help us to understand how you think about trading as a game of expectation and how you think about probabilities. Okay. Um, well, one of the unique things about us is that we don't believe in prediction. We think prediction is kind of silly. Uh, and the purpose of being in markets is not to predict anything. It is simply to uh, assess odds and probabilities. So we will spend a lot of time developing scenarios like here's what we think could happen or here's what we think is likely to happen. But this is not at all the same as a prediction. This is more like saying here are the odds and probabilities of the situation and so here is what makes a good bet. So when somebody goes on Bloomberg television and says I think X in the markets is going to happen in six months, we generally think that person is stupid because nobody knows what's going to happen in the market in six months and making money in markets is not about making successful predictions. It's about making um, positive expectation uh, wagers. So uh, an analogy for this, at the poker table, you never have perfect information and you never actually know what's going to happen next unless you're cheating. So in poker, you'll have a certain situation where you can use the information from how your opponent has acted and what the cards say to say, okay, I'm going to do X because there's a very high probability this is the right move. And then you have a positive expectation. If you ran that scenario a thousand times, you would make money on it. And so the way we view all of trading is that you're not trying to predict the future. You're just trying to make positive expectation bets where you're in line with the odds and probabilities. And if you do that enough times, then you'll make a lot of money. Um, there will be certain times where you have very strong certainty. You feel very strongly something's going to happen or you have high conviction on a trade. But once again, you're not guaranteed it's going to happen. You just have strong conviction. And so you make a larger bet. Um, but this attitude of gearing everything to odds and probabilities while not actually predicting anything is very different than most what most people are used to. Most people crave some kind of false certainty without recognizing that the type of certainty people typically crave or want is impossible to have. Nobody can have it. And so uh, we don't think trading is about certainty at all. It's just about odds, basically. Okay, so for someone who does think in terms of predicting and, and feels the need to want to predict the market, how can they shift their mindset to think more in terms of probabilistic outcomes? Well, I would say um, how to shift their mindset. Well, first of all, I would say just think philosophically about the challenge of prediction and think about how hard, if not uh, impossible it is, just because there are so many variables. There are so many things that you, none of us know or things that could go wrong that we had no idea about. Um, if you just take a small number of variables in any situation and then you magnify those towards all the variables happening in the market, we basically, you know, something could come out of left field at any time, anywhere and render any prediction um, useless. So first I would say recognize sort of the folly of it and then recognize all of the success that uh, traders and value investors and trend followers and business people and others have had simply aligning themselves with probabilities. So 
a really successful value investor will look at a company and he'll say, I don't know what's going to happen in the future, but I know that this company is really undervalued relative to its assets and the stock is really cheap. So if I buy it, good things will probably happen. Or an, uh, an entrepreneur will say, this is a great market to expand into. I don't know what's going to happen, but I know it's probably good to make a bet here. You know, a venture capitalist will say, uh, I don't know if this startup is going to succeed or not, but it looks like it, it, it could be a 10x or 100x, so I'll make a bet on it, and I can be wrong nine times out of 10, and I'll still make a lot of money. So if you look around, there's a lot of models that work well from just taking a pure probability expectation. And also, another group that's made hundreds and, you know, or made tens to hundreds of billions over decades is the trend followers, um, particularly in futures in the CTA space. And these guys don't predict anything at all. They just run algorithms where they expect trends to persist. So I would say the first thing is sort of do a do a study of markets and see what works for people and then just shift this mindset where you don't care about predicting the future. You just want to focus on odds and because this is what so many winners do. Whereas typically the people who, who are trying to predict are the guys who show up on CNBC or something and they're trying to build a track record of saying, oh, I said X and then it happened. But that's not actually related to making money. Yeah, okay. So, so where would someone even begin to start trying to figure out their odds or the probabilities that, you know, they would make money if they were to do this? Like, where would someone even start trying to discover those numbers? Where would, um, I guess that, that's a really good question. Uh, I haven't really thought about an optimal introductory book to probability and statistics. I guess if somebody wanted to start Philosophically, they, they might, uh, Taleb's books might be good, Nassim Taleb, in terms of um, uh, The Black Swan, I believe, and um, his other one, I forget the name of his first book, just talking about, you know, the philosophy of uncertainty. And then I would say just getting into um, a basic understanding of probability and statistics. Uh, poker could be a great training ground for learning to think probabilistically because almost every decision in poker is just a simply a pure probability decision where you say, if I repeated the situation a thousand times, would my action make money? And you look at, um, there's a potential wager and there's the size of the pot and you multiply the potential amount of money you could win towards times the percentage probability of your action. And uh, if it comes out to a certain formula, then you take it because it's a positive expectation over the long run. Um, so I would say philosophically, Taleb's books are probably a good place to start, um, like The Black Swan, and I'm, I'm blanking on the first one that he wrote now. Um, Anti-Fragile uh, is another good one. Um, and for actually just learning the math, I would say check out poker and, and read some, some good poker books and figure out how uh, professional poker players make money, and that'll give you a sense of that world of um, moving towards probability. Okay, cool. Well, I'll try and um, I'll try and link to a few of those resources you just mentioned there uh, in the show notes. So, so anyone listening, they'll be at chatwithtraders.com forward slash forty five, um, and there'll be links there. So, Jack, when did you actually begin to think in this type of way? Like, what put you onto this way of thinking, or is it something that you've had throughout your entire trading career? Um, my way of thinking has evolved from trying to reverse engineer the styles of the traders that 
I decided to be like from the very beginning. So um, in my first year or two of being interested in markets, I read all the Market Wizards books, you know, the original Market Wizards and New Market Wizards and uh, Stock Market Wizards and so on. And my attitude was kind of, um, I want to be like those guys. Uh, Jerry Seinfeld talks about when he was starting out and thinking about being a comedian, his attitude was just, I want to be one of those guys, like one of those guys who gets up on stage. He wanted to be a comedian. Um, my attitude was, I want to be like one of those guys, meaning market wizards. And I particularly picked out um, uh, Stanley Druckenmiller and Paul Tudor Jones <clears throat> and Victor Sperandio as three names that come to mind of guys that really influenced me. And I just sort of read everything about what they thought and tried to reverse engineer it and say, okay, why does this make sense? Why does this worldview make sense? And then I took that input and I built my own understanding around it. So, um, and, and then another big influence on me in, from the beginning was the Soros idea of fallibilism, where he would go around saying, hey, I might be wrong. I could be wrong about everything and I could change my mind at, at any time. But at the same time, when I really feel like I'm right, I'll make a huge bet. Um, that just made a lot of sense to me from, from the beginning. So. I had the seed of trying to emulate and reverse engineer these sort of mentors from afar. And I just sort of built my own knowledge around those seeds as the years went by. Okay. So just while we're still on the topic of um, probabilities and expectancy and that type of thing, I mean, there might be some traders who are listening to this and they think, okay, this sounds good in theory, but how well does this translate into real trading outcomes? Like once you actually try to put this into practice, how difficult is it to not skew your odds? I would say I think about it a little bit differently. Um, I think understanding probability and expectation is more about understanding um, how markets work and how trading systems work. It's more uh, information that you get from the situation um, that, that, that may sound weird. So let me, let me try and explain. So let's say, for example, a, um, a longtime swing trader analyzes thousands of trades and they recognize that their average uh, hit rate is 45%. Then they'll know, okay, the odds of, of me being successful on this next trade are 45%. And so then they can build a probability sense around that. Or you look at a situation and you say, based on my past analysis, um, the odds here are, are X. So it's, it's more like, like how accurate your assessments are going to be are um, dependent on the information you get from the market. Like how, if you're, the better your analysis is, the better your understanding of actual probability is. Um, so it's not that you start out and say, I assume X probability and this is how it's going to be. It's more like you pull that information from the market and, and it helps you. Um, another factor here is that when you understand the nature of probability and what I'm talking about, it actually changes the way you trade and the way you think about trades. So for example, one thing that a lot of traders don't realize is the incredible prevalence of the 90-10 ratio in terms of um, profit distribution. Uh, one thing I like to mention is there's this great book called Trading Risk by a guy named Ken Grant. 
And uh, this guy, Ken Grant, was a risk manager for a bunch of the top hedge funds in the world. Um, he worked for SAC, he worked for Tudor, he worked for More Capital, a bunch of others. And this guy has seen literally hundreds and hundreds of track records from the best traders in the world, all the managers at these funds. And in his book, he said that one of the things that blew him away is looking at all these hundreds of track records over and over again, he saw this 90-10 pattern where 90% of profits came from 10% of trades. And it was persistent or even 95-5. And it was persistent across all kinds of styles and markets and long and short and blah, blah, blah. It was just everywhere. So when you understand something like that, a light bulb goes on and you say, hmm, there's something probability driven here about how the market distributes profits. And then that influences your expectation and your psychology and a whole bunch of other things. So I think it's more, it's more about developing a philosophy and an information flow of understanding the mechanics of how markets work than it is setting something up and expecting it to, uh, to be right or wrong. Um, our, our message is, 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 not, is not, here's a tool you can use. It's more like, hey, this is how markets actually work. And the better you understand how markets actually work, the better you will function, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that's, that's really interesting. I like the way you explain that. So yeah, thank you very much, Jack. Let's keep this, uh, this moving along. And I'd like to get into your thoughts on some, just some more general pointers for developing traders to take into consideration. So can you talk about the subject of pressing harder when the opportunity arises and betting bigger when the time is right? Um, has this been an important factor to your success? And, and what are your views on fixed position sizing also? Sure. I think, um, I think position sizing is one of the biggest factors, if not the most dominant factor in trading success. Uh, if you are a discretionary trader, um, and it's also this replicates all across what you see in investing and in markets and business and in life. I think that being able to make the very large bet at the right time is absolutely, it, if you don't have this, the odds are, are much lower that you will succeed. Um, when you look at how the market distributes profits, profits are distributed on a fat tail basis, meaning profits are not just distributed regularly every day. They're very lumpy. They come in individual, you know, they come along sort of semi-rarely. And this is why I think what I was saying about Ken Grant, he observed all these P&Ls that were 90-10 or 95-5, and Peter Brandt has said the same thing. His P&L was 90-10. Um, you see this pattern over and over again, and what that implies is when a position is really, really attractive, you want to be able to make, um, take a very large position. And if you don't do that, then you're at risk of simply getting chopped up or, or ground to death because the light is not worth the candle. Um, there's, a, there's a popular trading phrase out there that says, uh, if you worry about the losses, the profits will take care of themselves. And I think that viewpoint is actually very, very wrong. I think it's, it's, it's totally wrong. I think you absolutely want to worry about the losses in terms of having risk management. But also, if you don't bet really big when the time is right, then you know, there's not a, even a reason to be there. And the extra profits from betting very big when the time is right are what makes the whole thing worth it. Um, the other interesting thing about this is that value investors and poker players, um, those disciplines 
and even entrepreneurship all show the exact same pattern of when it's a really great opportunity, you want to make a really big bet. You know, Warren Buffett in the beginning um, wrote in his 1965 letter, he said, listen, we're willing to put 40% of our whole partnership funds into one stock if it's the right stock. And, you know, he, he, he made some huge bets. Um, really successful entrepreneurs have made really huge bets. And poker players um, in high stakes cash game poker, once again, your profit ratio is going to be like 95-5. Maybe 5% of the hands you play, if not 2%, are going to produce the vast majority of your profits. So you see this happening over and over again where the big bet is really important. Um, I think that uh, this is actually one of the things that happens to quote-unquote experienced traders. Um, new traders tend to trade too big and blow up and then you know lose their capital. And then they become experienced and they become super conservative and they, they always want to take small positions and, and always want to be careful with their risk. And then their accounts stay small and dinky forever and they never really make any money and they wind up, it's like they're eating stale bread and, and you know, drinking watery soup. And, and there's never, they never actually make the profits to justify trading. And that's because they haven't mastered the art of making the big bet, which is so, so important. It's the reason why you're there. Okay, so just to add on that, I mean, how do you yourself sense when the time is right to, to take a larger position or, or bet larger? Sure. Uh, so I recently wrote about this. Um, there are a, a number of factors that just sort of all come together. And um, uh, I, I, used, I used four, four words to describe this recently. And they were um, alignment, resonance, clarity, and flow. So by alignment, meaning if you're looking at this trade, is um, are, are things above and below the trade in alignment with your idea? So like if you're bullish on semiconductors, does the whole tech space look bullish? Um, do other semiconductors stocks look bullish? You know, is, is there alignment there? Um, clarity, do you really see the situation clearly? Do you really see why this is an excellent trading idea? Is it powerful in your mind's eye? Um, and then uh, resonance, is there, are all the parts and pieces of the puzzle pointing in the same direction? You know, is, is there, there a good risk appetite? Is there good, are the trends flowing well, other things? And then flow is, um, you know, is this, a, is this a flowing market where you've got a nice counter trend and you're about to resume a nice trend? Or is it choppy and gross? Um, and there's these different factors that you look at. And when all those factors line up together and they just all come together, that's when you get this instinct based on all these factors that are shining green lights to just really press harder than uh, normal situations when you're trading smaller. Okay. And just with your, in line with your style of trading, are you, when you do take a larger position, is it sort of likely that you're going to jump all in right at the beginning or do you tend to pyramid as the trade evolves? Uh, we will tend to pyramid as the trade evolves. However, we will also take much larger positions from the start if we have high conviction. And then it's also influenced by uh, P&L, how, how much profit cushion we have. So if we have high conviction on a trade, we might take a significantly larger position to start, but then we'll also add to it. Uh, the more aggressive we are, the more, uh, the bigger the position we'll take to start and the more that we'll add. And uh, we're willing to vary our, 
position size by as much as 40 or 50 to 1 and possibly even 100 to 1 under extreme circumstances. So um, uh, position, initial position size does vary with conviction, and, uh, but we also definitely pyramid when we see the opportunity to. Okay, well said. So I'll definitely try and uh, link to that article you mentioned uh, just before in the show notes. Um, and I mean, just while we're talking about your writing, I mean, there's just so many great one-liners in your writing. I was, I was spending a lot of time on your website uh, last night and something I discovered um, or came across, which I'd like to quote you on here because I just thought it, it was brilliant. So you said, traders waste a lot of time on things that have no bearing on their P&L. If a line of inquiry has no direct or indirect bearing on your P&L, then why are you expanding energy and effort? So could you tell us a little more about your reasoning for making the statement? Or perhaps um, you could give us some examples of how aspiring traders could spend their time more wisely. Sure. Uh, well, I think a lot, of, a lot of activity and effort is devoted towards the wrong things or towards useless things. So a classic example is let's say you have a chart that has five or six different indicators on it and all those indicators are based on, on oscillators or momentum. So if you're looking at MACD and then you're looking at something else and you're layering something else on top of that, these might, this is like looking at the same thing five different times and it's all saying the same thing. So you really didn't need all that extra. You're, you're seeking false confirmation by finding yes men to agree with, you know, agree with the first thing, which is a, a waste of time. Or if somebody has, let's say somebody has a strongly bullish view on oil, they think oil's going to go up. And then they read a bunch more articles all saying the same thing, but they don't get any new information. It's like, well, why did you need to spend all that time reconfirming an opinion that you already had? So there's just a whole lot of inefficiency. And sometimes that inefficiency is aimed at... Um, uh, ego or reconfirming a bias that you already have or um, repeating information in a way that's that's not useful. And so I think there are just, there are a lot of behaviors in trading where if you really look at them and you examine them and say, what's the return on investment from behavior? You'll realize, you know what, I could just stop doing that. I could just cut that out. Uh, and I think a, a lot of traders have uh, they're not thinking about the habits they have that they would be better off if they just stopped doing those things. Yeah, I think that's that's a really um, important thing that you highlight there. Um, I mean, that really resonated with me. I quite, I quite liked that. So uh, again, something else I'll try and link to in the show notes. But um, another article you wrote uh, was on form and technique. And in it, you spoke about what separates market participants who are average traders and those who are serious competitors. Would you mind just sharing a little bit about that um, now with us? Uh, sure. Well, I think um, there's, there's a level of, to, to be a serious competitor, there's a level of professionalism that you have to aspire to, and that just is created by a certain amount of training and focus, and it just shows up in a sort of discipline and consistency that other people don't have. So say, for example, that you are serious about being a martial arts competitor um, and you wanted to win martial arts competitions and other things, then you would, 
you would practice and show extreme discipline and rigor and your form would be very good. You would be able to move through the, the you know, the kata and the different disciplinary movements and you would know them very well as a function of your desire to succeed and that would help you. Whereas somebody who's not as serious and not as devoted might be sloppy, there would be, you know, they would have much looser movements, they would do a bunch of small things that aren't as efficient and they wouldn't be nearly as likely to be successful. And so really understanding high quality form and technique and focusing on the best technique is what's going to help you make the best decisions on a day in day out basis and um, lower the odds that you make any significant mistakes which might reduce your performance. And that really, over the long run, all those little things really add up. Yeah, 100%. Now, Jack, we've discussed some really great topics here, but um, you know, as we know, trading isn't black and white. So at the end of the day, how important is experience to bring this all together? Uh, how, well, I think experience is, is absolutely crucial and irreplaceable because without experience, you cannot really make good decisions in real time. And the reason I say that is because if you had a whole bunch of books from, you know, master traders and it was the best education in the world, um, but then you had to go out and actually make decisions from those books, the flow of market data coming at you and the, the, the amount of decisions you have to make in, in the analysis and the time window that you have, um, you wouldn't be able to make decisions fast enough. You can't go look up a book every time you get confused about something. So, um, when, you know, when you're acting in real time. So part of what experience does is experience is the process of downloading and assimilating all these various nuances and subtleties of information and knitting them together in your head. And um, another thing that experience does is when you have experience, you run into weird or odd situations that come up very infrequently. And the only way to come across these situations is to get experience in the first place. So you kind of need to build that experience or work with someone who has it um, in order to really be at the place where you can trade comfortably with, with large size and have a lot of exposure um, at the right times, which is sort of what it's all about. So I would say, I mean, it, you have to have it um, and you have to build it. There's no, there's no real way around that. Yeah, well said, Jack. Now, just a, a few more questions uh, before we bring this to a close. So one thing I'd like to ask you is markets and trading aside, how do you spend your time when you're not in front of the screen and need to shut off? Okay, um, that's a good question. Um, let's see. I really enjoy uh, outdoor activities. I really enjoy uh, snowboarding and hiking. Um, my fiance and I have a five-month-old Rottweiler puppy and named uh, George Soros. We named him after the famous <laughs> speculator. <laughs> Very cool. And yeah, he's a he's a blast to tra uh, to play with. Um, really enjoy traveling and um, spending time with, with uh, friends and colleagues, um, poker, of course. Um, but really, I guess I would say it centers around uh, outdoor activities and uh, travel and, you know, great food and great culture. Really enjoy visiting um, world-class cities and then, um, you know, coming home again. Um, 
so yeah, out, outdoors, travel and culture and uh, spending time with friends and family. Excellent. So one more question. If you weren't trading, what do you think you would be doing? I would be a, a professional poker player. Um, no question. There is just, it's, it's amazing the amount of, of profit that is, is still in that game. And it's for, for similar reasons to what you see in trading. It's just because nine out of 10 of people at that table or even nine out of 10 people who think they're professional don't actually have the requisite discipline or even the requisite mathematical training to really be serious. Um, and that just creates a whole lot of profit opportunity. So, yeah. So what came first? Were you into poker before you got into trading or was it the other way around? Oh, I was into trading long before poker. I was, um, I came across poker about 10 years into my trading journey, uh, in that I had a, a friend and client who I was having lunch with two or three times a week. And he was this brilliant software entrepreneur who was also had, um, Asperger's. And so he would just super focus on these things and he had become obsessed with poker and he just kept talking about it. And it was all he would talk about when we had lunch. And after about six or seven of these lunches, I, I realized, you know what? Poker sounds a lot like trading. So I took it up as a hobby because of the similarities to trading. And I was delighted to find that they're, you know, they're so similar. They're both, it's, it's amazing how much they overlap. Yeah, I have no doubt. So not that I've played it before, but yeah, definitely um, I take your word on that. So how competitively do you play or is it still just a hobby for you? Um, I played pretty seriously for a while while always keeping it in the background. Um, I was playing 20 hours a week for a while while actually working and doing market research at the table. Uh, they let you they let you have a laptop as long as you don't slow the game down. And so I had a laptop in my lap while I was playing. Um, and uh, I was playing, uh, I've played medium to high stakes. Uh, for a while I was playing high stakes in the Bellagio where the average stack was between 10 and $20,000. Um, and uh, I, overall I take it pretty seriously. Um, but of course trading is, is far more important. I think uh, in the future, one of the things that we'd like to do, we, we plan to actually start a poker team um, in part because we can teach people the methodology that I created around poker and also in part because poker is just an excellent training ground for trading. Um, to become good at poker, you have to really learn math and statistics and probability on your feet and you also have to control emotional swings and understand um, extreme uh, probability cycles and fat tails. So poker is one of the best training grounds you could have for becoming a top level macro trader. So um, I'm, uh, I've sort of backburnered it a little bit right now because we've got so many other big projects, but we're going to bring it back around and probably start a poker team in the next, uh, next year or two. That's really interesting. And I mean, you're, you're definitely in the right place for it being um, exactly. in the city of Las exactly. Vegas. <laughs> so yep. Jack, Tell listeners where they can go to find out more about you and how they can connect with you. Sure. Um, your, uh, our, our website is mercenarytrader.com and we post a bunch of stuff up there. We're about to do a, a complete overhaul and, and a website relaunch. I'm excited about that. We write um, uh, daily and we have an e-letter that goes out. You can get our stuff in our, our inbox. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is mercenaryjack. And uh, I'm pretty active on there. And um, 
you'll get some of my sarcastic humor and, and pieces of news. And I also tweet our articles up there. Um, so really, yeah, visit mercenarytrader.com or check out Mercenary Jack on Twitter and you'll be plugged into our stream. Awesome. Really good. So yeah, guys, definitely check out uh, mercenarytrader.com. There's a ton of great articles there which have been written by Jack. So uh, plenty of great reading. Jack, thanks so much for doing this. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you and I uh, hope to catch up again soon. Sure. It was excellent. Thanks again. Thank you. Hey guys, hope you enjoyed the interview with Jack here. He was a really interesting guest and it was great to learn more about how he views markets and trading. Now, just a final reminder to take us out here. The giveaway to win a free one-on-one 90-minute mentoring session is coming to a close this Friday, 6th of November at midnight Eastern Standard Time. So if you haven't already entered, go to chatwithtraders.com forward slash win, W-I-N to enter now. This is your last chance to be one of three winners. So, I mean, this is just an awesome opportunity to get access to a seasoned pro trader who is genuinely keen to help you improve and become a better trader. So time is ticking, guys. Go to chatwithtraders.com forward slash win, W-I-N. Go there now, enter your email address. That's it. It's very simple. Best of luck to you. And if we don't speak in the meantime, I'll catch you again next week. You've come to the end of this episode of Chat with Traders, but don't worry, more great episodes are on the way. To stay updated with each great new episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, and we'd love it if you leave us a rating and review. We'll see you next time on Chat with Traders.